I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, welcome back to the King of Culture podcast. It's great to be together. Seth, good morning. Good morning, Luke Simmons. We uh, both have just recently celebrated birthdays in the last uh, week or so. We have. We sure have. We're another year older, maybe. Eh, probably not another year wiser, but uh, you know, yeah. I'm not sure what a year of wisdom is, but <laughs> I have last year's year of wisdom. <laughs> so maybe. So, so I guess we'll see. It's not the most wise I've gotten in one year, but I did. <laughs> what do you think is the most wise you've gotten in one year? Definitely age 28. Really? What happened that year? Uh, I had a first kid. Oh, okay. Yeah, that changes things for sure. It was the year of just learning how much I didn't know about things. Oh, that's a good lesson. That's sometimes a good starting point for wisdom. Sometimes demoralization and increasing <laughs> wisdom go hand in hand. Occasionally. You if you're wise, uh, yeah, being brought to your knees sometimes is a good way to learn. So, there you go. Yeah. Well, we're glad that y'all are here. If you're uh, newer with us, um, we say this phrase every time that we're critiquing the hell out of culture. Um, but one of the things we try to just remind you of from time to time is that we're not trying to you know, be a couple of grumpy guys ranting and saying, hey, get off my lawn. Uh, but we notice that there's just this reality that there are heavenly things in the world, there are hellish things in the world, and those hellish things and heavenly things are also in us. And so as we critique the hell out of culture, we're noticing things in culture, but we're also noticing things within ourselves as the Christian church and even as Redemption Gateway and even ourselves individually. And today, we're taking a little bit of a look at something that isn't necessarily out there as much as it's kind of in the family of God, or at least proximate to the family of God. So what, what are we talking about today? Yeah, this one's more explicitly a problem with critiquing the hell out of church culture, not much secular society. And I do think I was watching, so my wife and I are watching through Seinfeld right now, and we're on the last season. Yeah. And we just got to episode uh, where there's Festivus, the airing of the grievances. <laughs> yes, right. I got a problem with you people! That's right. That's how I feel. About the American church right now. So maybe we are going to rant a little yeah, bit. we sure are. As you were saying that, I was like, I don't think that's true. We're going to be a little grumpy and rant. So. Okay. Hey, I, I don't know if people totally mind the grump. Yeah. But I mean, uh, in, in sustainable doses, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, everything in moderation, yeah. as, as the Christians say. Yeah, I think as much as anything, though, what we're trying to say is that as we critique stuff, we're trying to do it self-reflectively, not yes. lobbing grenades at those people who do it wrong. So even as we, uh, you know maybe rant a little bit about problems with church culture. Um, just wanting to go, hey, let's have this be something that examines us and puts yeah. us under the microscope a bit. So Yeah, so there's this article that came out in September of 22, so very recently. And the title of the article is Top 5 Heresies Among American Evangelicals. And this is the type of article that I just see the headline. And I think Top 5 Heresies, like it's someone's favorite movies, like it's, the things that we like the most that we shouldn't like. Yeah, and this is in Christianity Today, so a fairly reputable Christian-oriented publication. Yeah, and, and they did this based on an article done by, or a research project done by Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Together, which are both reputable depending on, uh, for, from different groups of people. And it's just, it's frustrating to me, the whole heresy thing. So heresy most literally means to choose your own way, um, okay. to pick a way, to go on your own. And it's funny. rather than being aligned with yeah. the way of yeah, of like the Bible and the way of way of historic Christian thinking. Christianity. Right? And so the the way that 
it's frustrating because so many uh, conservative re- evangelicals or reform folks or Christians uh, get so frustrated with especially young people or Gen Zers or liberals so-called for this whole like business of self-identification. Oh, I self-identify as, I self-identify as. And it just mm-hmm. kind of feels silly, especially to uh, older millennials, Xers, boomers, mm-hmm. and, and it, this whole self-identification thing. And so I see this thing of all these Christians self-identifying as Christians who are not Christians, and it kind of mm. bugs me. Like, <laughs> self-identifying as a Christian is not like what makes one a Christian. Self-identifying as a follower of Jesus is not what makes one a follower of Jesus. So if I'm hearing you right, you can you can think of yourself as a Christian and not be a Christian. Yeah, you can think of yourself as a Christian and not fall anywhere close to like the definition that Christ gives of what it means to be a follower or a little Christ of himself. And so, Are there any examples just biblically of situations where somebody thought of themselves as a, as a Christian, but you come to find out they aren't? Yeah, there's stories uh, you get, especially in the early church where you have uh, people converting for a little while uh, mm. just to use God. Yep. Like Simon the Magician in the book of Acts, he's like, hey, this Jesus guy has a good thing going. Uh, a lot of people are following him, and he kind of wants to leverage Christ for personal gain. And when he gets called on it, it he just walks away. He like, And you're not totally sure how his, he ends up. You kind of find out. And so uh, John Calvin called these things spurious conversions, mm. things that look like you're following Jesus on the service for a little while, but the root doesn't go deep. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't take... Uh, Jesus' own parable of the sower is a great example of this. Going sure. off the roots is you have uh, the seeds being tossed out, and some initially grow up and then get snuffed out. Uh, some get eaten by the birds, and uh, only some that land on fertile soil then grow up and sustain, and it goes really well. So there's Yeah, it seems like those four soils, three of them would self-identify as embracing the seed, and yet only one of them actually is bearing fruit. Yeah, and and so there's the, the test of time, the endurance, yeah. uh, the, the the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, that saints persevere. Like it's, it's not a matter of earning salvation, but of reveal, like demonstrating like that it really took hold and laid root of your heart. Yeah. Jesus warns at the end of the sermon on the Mount about people who will say, Lord, Lord, but he'll say, I didn't actually know you like the way that you conducted yourself, made it clear you didn't know me. And uh, yeah, yeah, so it, there can be this, you know, even Paul, I think it's in second Corinthians 13. He encourages us, Hey, examine yourself, to see test yourself, really the faith. see if you're really in the faith. Yeah, so I, I think that I see an article, Top 5 Heresies Among American Evangelicals, and I go, give me a break, these self-identifying evangelicals who don't have biblical views of things. like who, and there, it, it feels uh, like in my judgmental heart, I presume there's like this arrogance, like treating Christianity like this buffet of I'm going to eat this part but not have that part, as though there's like this menu within Christianity, you can eat what you want from it. Rather than Christianity being like this five-course meal prepared by a, a five-star chef, and he delivers it to you, and you eat it. You know, like, I, I think Christianity yeah. is a whole package. It's a package deal. You don't get to pick and choose uh, which parts of the Bible you um, believe or submit to. It's uh, you, you take it as a whole. It's kind of like getting married. You marry your whole spouse, <laughs> not parts of your spouse. Like, sure. Jesus is a person. You get all of him. You don't get parts of him. And so, you know, if I married my wife and I was like, I'm married to you, except for on Thursdays, it'd be like, that's called not a marriage. That, you know, that's, <laughs> sure. that's called, you're not, you're not actually giving yourself mind, body, soul to a person. And so the main metaphor we have in scripture of coming to Christ is like you, marriage, like we're the bride of Christ. And so this idea of heresy, it's initially frustrating to me. And so 
just because I want people who take up the name of Christ. And if, even if you think about the idea of taking the Lord's name in vain, you could also translate that like, taking on the Lord's name in vain. That if I'm going to take the Lord's name on myself, call myself a Jesus follower, a Christian, um, I want to take on his name not in vain, not as a brand-serving purpose, not as just some label that I leverage to use something. And so it's important to me, like if you think about orthodoxy, like orthodontists, it's about getting straight. <laughs> okay. You know, getting, getting their crooked teeth straight, orthodontists do that. Is that the etymology of those words? Ortho, yeah, straighten. Oh, is that what it is? Huh. Yeah. Didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, or at least it sounds good to me. So. <laughs> Great. Orthodox, orthodox, get the teeth straight. Orthodox. Hey, as long as you're confident, just go with it. Yeah, the more confident you are, the more likely it is to be true. Yep. Just like these heretics who say they're evangelicals. <laughs> so I, you, getting your getting your doctrine straightened up, right? Healthy doctrine, um, sober doctrine, straight doctrine, trying to get it uh, aligned yep. or versus misaligned. And so heresy is picking your own way. So it's there's like this presumption of uh, arrogance. I'm picking my own way. I'm choosing my own way. And, and if I'm getting you, what you're saying is, if you're actually an evangelical, and we probably need to have some conversation about what that term means, right? It's very confusing and contested in the media and things like that. But if you're actually evangelical, you won't also be a heretic. <laughs> That'd be ideal. That'd be a, that's what I would hope would happen, right? And 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 part of what this article is really to me. So maybe there is arrogance. People going like, eh, I don't like that one. I'm out. But I think think there's also probably just some ignorance, like a lack of education or lack of good teaching. And so I don't want to presume everyone who holds these orthodox positions these semi-orthodox or heterodox or heretical positions are by nature arrogant, but I do think that it, we have to be able to at least admit that there is an education gap and try to help people close it. And so that's really the, the goal of this. But uh, going back to the whole question, of like what even is an evangelical? There's huge yeah. debates about that um, as a political voting block versus an ortho versus a, uh, like a theological band of people. Sure. All right. So historically, yeah. like if I, if I watch meet the press and they're talking about, some percentage of evangelicals who voted in such or such a way, right? Or they've polled evangelicals. My impression is they're basically at that point talking about people who kind of go to church sometimes and think of themselves as Christian. Yeah. Most of the time it's self-identified evangelicals. Yeah. Because they're not going to give a doctrine test to every person who's going to give a political statement. Sure. Because, yeah. Especially you know, media, mainstream media, you know, non-Christian media. They're, they're, they don't think in those terms. It's way more about group identification which for polling purposes, I understand. Yeah. But historically, evangelicals are an outgrowth of fundamentalism, which is, I think, just something to be mindful of. And by fundamentalism, I, fundamentalism in the 1920s is different than fundamentalism nowadays. Yeah. Really what you had was this batch of revisionists uh, amending Scripture, um, denying the authority of Scripture, denying the resurrection of Christ, denying uh, the miracles of Christ, call it demythologization, taking all of the spiritualistic aspects of it and ripping it out of scripture saying that was naive people from a long time ago. Yeah. I call it like critical revisionists or yeah. Weren't they called the modernists? Yeah. Modernists. Yeah. And they're kind of going, Hey, you know, this this old antiquated stuff, it's not going to sell anymore. Like this isn't going to work. We're going to have to, if we want to be relevant to modern modern. society, we have to do scientific method to scripture. Yep. And so as people desiring to be respected by secular modernists, trying to make the Bible seem respectable to secular society. And so those would be called like classic liberal theologians. And I don't mean by that anything related to the modern liberal theologians of today, which are kind of the, the pride pushers or um, just kind of like the, the cotton candy vibe Christians. I mostly mean people who are 
like classic liberal theologians are denying the resurrection of Christ. They are denying the miracles of Christ. They're denying the authority and inspiration of scripture. And so there's, they're denying what they call the fun, like what fundamentalists and called the fundamentals of the faith, that the fundamentals of the faith is Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. He left uh, his deposit of doctrine into his uh, disciples who then authored scripture that we now submit to and follow today. And so like this whole, like the creeds councils that uh, God's people have established over time, the fundamentals fundamentalists were going like, rather than being these liberals who are throwing out the fundamentals, we're going to hold on to the fundamentals and hold dearly to yeah. the authority of scripture, the resurrection of Christ, the miracles of Jesus and the relevance of submission uh, to those various things in the here and now. And so the fundamentalists from a hundred years ago were really clinging deeply to what was being tossed out by uh, liberal theologians. And so evangelicalism grows out of that and kind of takes on a more slightly more distinct flavor, even in a way from, uh, like denominationalism. So like you have, you had the, uh, the Presbyterians, uh, you had the Methodists, you had, um, the Episcopalians, Episcopalians or Anglicans, the AME church. And so you have all these denominations that are having this schisms between liberals and fundamentalists and grow out of them. But then evangelicalism kind of grows out of those denominations. And a lot of like the modern non-denominational Bible movement kind of saying, rather than splitting off his denomination, starting a new denomination, we're going to start these, uh, these newer, like altogether new denominations and go that direction. And so there's this historian, a guy named Bebbington, yep. uh, and he authored this book uh, on like what he called the evangelical quadrilateral or Bebb now we refer to it as the Bebbington's quadrilateral. And he's arguing about like, this is what an evangelical is historically, theologically speaking. And so this is not what somebody doing, political polling is thinking about, but no. this is the classic theological definition. Yeah. When people say 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, they're talking about self-identified evangelicals. They did not give some theology test to right. find out what are these, like, yeah. like it's not a litmus test on theology. Yeah. It's a litmus test on group identification. Whereas I, as an evangelical would prefer to lean away from the self-identification route and more go towards like the actual analysis would. Yeah, so what, is it what right? are Bebbington's four things? So the first thing he has is what he calls biblicism, which is the kind of holding on to that root of fundamentalism, meaning uh, the Bible is without error and is delivered unto the saints for the formation of faith and not to be submitted to in whole. That to disbelieve any part of the Bible is to disbelieve God himself. So mm -hmm. biblicism is the, is the main one, and that is the most explicitly grown out of the fundamentalist roots. Well, that's where, even as we look at this article, and, and we'll link to it, um, you know, one of the things before they get into the actual top five heresies, they uh, give a graph about, you know, U.S. adults compared to evangelicals who agree with the statement, quote, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of the ancient, of ancient myths, but is not literally true. And according to their research, 53% of U.S. adults would say, yeah, the Bible is helpful, it's myths, whatever, it's not really, literally true. 26% of evangelicals say that. And, and Bebbington would go false. 0% yeah. of evangelicals believe that because to be an evangelical, one of the marks is you believe the Bible's true. Yeah, he'd say 26% of self-identified evangelicals don't know what the heck they're talking about. That's exactly what he would say. Like, you're not an evangelical if you don't think the Bible is literally true. Now, I don't want to get hung up on that word literally because the word literally sure. is literally confusing because <laughs> the Bible is written in so many different genres from poetry to prose to um, apocalyptic sure. literature. And so uh, when we talk about not literally true, I do think there are historical 
books in the Bible that are literally true. There are letters that Paul literally wrote. And in that sense, they're all literally true, but they're literally true according to their genres. Sure. And so like... Yeah, I was just reading today the end of Ezekiel, which is all this stuff about a future temple. Right? And, and then people debate, does this mean there's literally going to be a new temple rebuilt? And other people would say, no, it's true that there will be this new kingdom of God that comes about. And, you know, so either way, the, the issue is it's true, whether it's literally how it plays out or not. Yeah. So the Bible is literally true, but it's also literally needs to be interpreted according <laughs> to its genre. Yeah. Some of which, like if you interpret the Psalms literally, you're going to be a bad reader of poetry. Like sure. they're all God's word, but they're not. So so the first of the four from Bevington was Biblicism. Yeah. The second one we get is uh, crucicentrism. Okay. Or cross-centeredness, where a lot of like language like gospel-centered comes from. It's this reality uh, that there's an emphasis or focus on Jesus had to die for our sin. Okay. Meaning uh, substitutionary atonement is a term that uh, we as sinners, God being a good judge, God judges sin, the wages of sin is death, that our debt must be paid, and that Christ pays the debt of his people on the cross, bearing it once and for all into himself. And so that would be a major emphasis on crucicentrism. Um, yeah, this is opposed to your good works or opposed to just seeing Jesus as an example that Jesus had to die. He had to as die. As a substitute for sinner. He had to die. He chose to die. If he didn't die, we'd be totally screwed yeah. is, is the idea there. Yeah. It's also a, just a good emphasis over and against kind of like various prosperity theologies, which say that like if you love God and believe in him, things will go well for you always. Uh, like there's a, like Martin Luther emphasized this. Obviously, he was not evangelical because he was a German in the 16th century. Um, but the what he called the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. The theology of the cross just really highlights the reality that fidelity to God is often accompanied with substantial suffering and difficulty and alienation from the world, not necessarily victory within the world. And we look at that at Christ on himself. And so the heart of Christianity is ultimately death to self, death to sin, uh, in the metaphorical sense, but then in the literal sense that Christ died in our place. And so we're no longer going to be punished for our sin. Mm. We can yeah. be disciplined as God's children, corrected, reprimanded, but we're not ever going to be punished by God. And so that's a centerpiece to that. So biblicism, crucicentrism. Yeah, the third one is conversionism, okay. meaning the belief that it's important and necessary for uh, Christians to encourage non-Christians to become Christians. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if you really believe that faith and repentance in Christ, that his substitutionary death means eternal life, you're going to love the people that you love, you're going to want to come up under that blessing yeah. and to come to him. And so there's this desire to introduce people to Jesus uh, and a burden to introduce people to Jesus, not just as desire, but also like a responsibility. Yeah, it makes me think of you know someone like Billy Graham emphasizing you must be born again. Right, and even the terminology around born again is uh, really seems like it does emerge out of this event. I mean, obviously, it emerges out of John three, um, but people like thinking of themselves in that way. Are Are you born again? Yes, I was born again at this time. The the emphasis of that it seems like it really um, heightens as you get into the evangelical movement. And the big idea is that growing up in a Christian family does not make you a Christian. Going to a Christian church does not make you a Christian. Self-identifying as a Christian does not make you a Christian. Converting to Christ in faith and repentance is what makes you a Christian. And so this really pushes against the self-identification piece and goes 
no, this is not a sociology group. This is not a political voting block. This is a batch of people who God has reconciled to himself mm-hmm. and who have fallen in love with him and appreciate him and are full of gratitude for him, who are not just uh, doing group identification, tribalism stuff. Yeah. So biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, what's the fourth one? The fourth one is activism, uh, which is that evangelicals are busy. They, <laughs> they work. Yeah. They, this is like the idea of Protestant work ethic. That generally speaking, where Protestantism goes, literacy goes up, productivity goes up, um, the marketplace improves because there's this idea that God gave us a mission and we are busy in moral reform, political reform, voluntary cooperations, educational activities. There's this desire to build schools, start hospital, like hospital, like, and so even in the history of Calvinism, Calvinism, Calvinists like start schools, they start hospitals, they plant mm-hmm. churches, there's a, a go and do it. Yeah, I think you could even argue that the you know, some of the moral majority and religious right uh, effort is a, f- a form of this, right? And and perhaps over time it gets distorted and it gets, you know, wacky in certain places, but that that's consistent with an evangelical ethos yep. is we're going to do things to, you know, change the world. Yeah, there's this understanding that uh, we cannot bring about the kingdom of God through our good efforts, but we will try and sometimes the spirit will bless our efforts. Yeah. And we, you know, like pol- politics are not the ultimate hope of bringing about the kingdom of God, but politics have brought about much good. Like, yeah. So sure. like MLK talked about how I cannot legislate that someone's heart would be non-racist, but I can punish them for lynching. Yeah, sure. Legally. Yeah, right? thankfully. There, sure. Yeah, there is this reality that uh, the law of mankind and lobbying for good laws that are just, that are fair, that are equal— uh, can bring about a, a degree of better flourishing in in the world. Uh, and put it, placing those as the ultimate hope is silly and foolish, but there is like a sense that evangelicals have that they're sent to try to impact the world. Yep. This would be different than like the Amish view or the Anabaptist view. Yep. It's kind of the separatist. We're going to go and create our own little pocket over here, distinct from the rest of everything else. And even kind of conceiving of holiness as separateness or distance rather holiness as a means of as an energy that creates engagement not disengagement with culture and that's not just doing culture wars but it's actually just doing culture making and trying to bring about the best thing you can so that's the between quadrilateral and so evangelicals would kind of have those four ingredients and they do kind of somewhat form a sociological group that's grown out of fundamentalism that's rooted in kind of bible church community church type orientations yeah and yet now as that definition has kind of uh, vaporized a little bit and just become more mushy, more of like sociological factors related to how often do you go to church and, you know, how do you conceive of yourself? Functionally, so often now, evangelical is a white person who voted for Trump. That's like the way that the popular media talks about it. Yeah. Um, And if it's 81% true, that's about as true as you can get on like a political deal. But I'd prefer it if we clung to like the historical theological definition of evangelical as it's someone who believes these things about God, the Bible, and the world. Not necessarily people who have uh, sided with a particular candidate or a particular political party for the sake of like a short-term reality because that's just such a short-term vision. Yep. Like party politics shift so much decade to decade and generation to generation, whereas uh, Christians have held firmly to orthodoxy for thousands of years. And so I think that maintaining a theological, biblical understanding of who we're trying to be is at a minimum generationally wise and sustainable 
and at a maximum helps us not be tossed to and fro by current events as we're trying to identify who we are in the world. Yeah. Well, in the article that we're uh, engaging with, it, it mentions that in 2015, the National Association of Evangelicals and Lifeway Research trying to define, okay, what is it to be evangelical by belief versus by just identification? And they came up with, you know, agreement with four statements, which are actually pretty similar to the Bevington four. But here are those statements. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. So that would be like biblicism. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. That'd be like crucicentrism. It is very important for me to personally, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their savior. That would be kind of like an evangelic, like an evangelism activism piece. And then the other one was only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So that would be like conversionism. So I guess you have, you know, at least among the National Association of Evangelicals, whoever they are, they're, um, in a sense, trying to reaffirm that Bevington quadrilateral, though probably, you know, truncating the activism piece just a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So this gets back to this idea of heresy, so it's not heresy to not be an evangelical, right? Evangelicals are a group of Christians that are largely defining themselves. So here's, here's one of the things we have to understand is that creeds, statements, confessions are always done uh, reactively historically. Yeah. Right. So the reason you have an apostle's creed is because, or a Nicene creed is because Arianism is popping up and gaining popularity. Right, like we just issued a statement on the body and gender identity as Redemption Church in 2021, like May of 21. That's not because we all of a sudden believed a new thing. It's because all of a sudden new false beliefs are popping up, and we had to clarify. Oh, also we don't believe this. Yeah. So Arianism is a heresy, and this is one of the popular ones. This is the second most popular heresy in this article. Jesus was created by God. Uh, the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, 73% of evangelicals agreed with this, that Jesus was made, that he was created. And this is class A, <laughs> capital H, heresy, false belief, that G, like the, the orthodox position that Jesus is uncreated, eternally generated of the Father, that he is co-equal with the Father, that he is not a lesser being derived from him, uh, that even when it talks about him being the firstborn of creation, it's talking about his position as ruler, you know, the the the, oh, the one who manages the inheritance, you know, the firstborn is the executor of the estate, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's not talking about him as, certainly I'm talking about him as created, but Jesus in the beginning was God and was with God, that this is this is the Trinitarian view of things. And so you have seventy three percent of evangelicals, which means <laughs> uh, only twenty seven percent of evangelicals are not heretics. Yeah, that's which is a huge problem, right? And so uh, when this is one where I you know, I I I do think like even that phrase, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, I could imagine someone going, Well, yeah, yeah, he's the greatest. He's the greatest. You know, talking about Jesus, we sing about Jesus all the time. He's the best. He's the greatest. But if you don't really look at that carefully, you know, so it it probably I want to I want to think that this reflects um, some poor teaching and yeah. some poor 
understanding. Well, it's also what the LDS church teaches. Yeah. So, so I think especially in Arizona um, and in this type of the area, like yeah. Mormonism is an Aryan heresy, like the way that they talk about the Trinity. Right. Uh, whereas like historically the church has taught this, that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. And so the mystery of the Trinity, that God is one and he is three, is certainly unresolvable. And a lot of times what happens with heresy is you are resolving mystery that mm. you should not be resolving. Interesting. And so that he is consubstantial, that he is the same substance as the Father, that he, uh, that what they call the hypostatic union. So the, that he has the same substance, he's made of the same substance as us humans, and he's made of the same substance as, fa- as the Father, that he has two natures. Yeah. And he's fully God and fully man, not 50% God, 50% man, not some kind of yin and yang situation, but he's 100% both, that he is with God and God and fully human. And the reason that people are, that's like the main heresy in the history of the church is because holding on to that tension is difficult for people, Mm -hmm. that God is like me and he is like God. Yeah. And we got to hold on to that. And so... If you're listening to this podcast and you think Jesus was made or if he's a lesser God, you are heretic and you right now can become not one. <laughs> well, and some of the confusion here, I think, even goes into what they list as the third heresy, which is that Jesus is not God. So in that research, 43% of people agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So on, so 43 say he's not God. 73 say well, he was the first and greatest thing God made. <laughs> It's like so, thirty-something percent of people probably say he is God, but lesser God, and forty-three percent of people are saying he's not God. Right. I mean, either way, it's a problem. But but the gap between those two two is pretty interesting. I mean, that's a that's a thirty-point gap. Uh, shows you there's some significant confusion between these. But man, forty-three percent of self-identifying evangelicals saying, "Hey, he's a good teacher, not God." Like what? Yeah, and you get this in in Colossians that. By him and through whom all things were created, um, that he is the creator God. In the book of John, seven different times, he calls himself the I am, which is the way that the Father reveals himself in the Old Testament. He's like, I am that. Yeah. I am before Abraham. That he's, and so I am is another, like the shorthand way of saying Yahweh, mm-hmm. that I share the name of God. This is why when we baptize people, we baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit share a name, and that name is Yahweh. Yep. And so, uh, well, and Jesus does what any other Jew would be would think of as unthinkable, which is he receives worship. He receives worship. He forgives sin. Yeah. And, they, and they go, like, how do you, can you forgive sin? Only God forgives sin. And he goes, exactly. Right. And well, then, and when he said, before Abraham was, I am, the very next verse says they picked up stones to stone him because they knew he was making himself equal with God. Yeah, so it's very interesting that modern people think, eh, Jesus is not God. But really the reason that Jesus was killed and was delivered unto the the Romans to be killed by the Jews was because he blasphemed, which means he claimed to be God. Yeah. And so at least the people closest to Jesus were convinced that he thought he was God to the degree that they're willing to kill him. Yeah. So we got the next one. The Holy Spirit is not a personal being. This kind of triggers a personal story for me. Okay. When they don't have, they don't give the, uh, I guess they do. They say 60% of, uh, of people in the survey agreed that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Too much Star Wars there, I guess. Yeah. What's the, the force. what's the personal story, Seth? 
So I'm 18 years old. I'm an intern, Grace Community Church. And I'm 18. So, like, just picture <laughs> the most arrogant 18-year-old you could think of. Okay, got it. And then go one notch above that, and that was me. Uh, but I didn't know what heresy was. You did or didn't? I sure did. Okay. Yeah, I sat under a good Bible teaching, Michael Parker, my high school pastor. I, you know, I read the Bible. Yep. Kind of had good instincts. And we had a small group leader in the high school ministry, and they finished a small group, came out of a small group. And one of the kids in the group was like, hey, Seth, so-and-so. I'm not going to say his name in case he's listening, but he knows who he is. <laughs> uh, was saying that there's really, like, the Trinity is really two persons in one force. Mm, one okay. And uh, the Son is a person, the Father is a person, the Spirit is just an emanation from the two of them. The, the Spirit is not a person. Okay. It is just a force. Yeah. It's just the energy of love radiating. Okay. And... I had no reason why I knew that was false, but I was like, that's super false. So went to, uh, I went and talked to my high school pastor and was like, hey, so-and-so small group leaders literally teaching heresy in this group. And he was like, oh, I don't know, maybe maybe those kids heard it wrong. I was like, okay. So I went and posted on Facebook, the Holy Spirit is a person. If you think anything besides that, then you're a heretic. <laughs> okay. It's called leaving a trap. And so then... So this guy was in his 40s at the time, okay. commented on my Facebook post as an 18-year-old and said, well, actually, blah, 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 blah. So I screenshot it and sent it to the elders and said, get this guy out of here. Oh, wow. <laughs> Man, crafty, and, dude. Yeah, and it was, uh, I just remember being so frustrated. And then we had to have a meeting to talk about it. And, and I just remember thinking, like, we're sitting, me, this 18-year-old, this youth pastor who's in his 30s, and this 40-year-old who's a heretic, and we're, like, arguing about interpreting scripture. And I just remember thinking, who does this guy think he is? That he's just going, like, well, you know, I'm going to reinterpret scripture in a way that the people last 2,000 years of the church history haven't done it. So I'm, like, beyond frustrated and all hot and bothered. Anyway, so the guy ends up uh, leaving the church and certainly leaving deal. And it definitely contributed to my arrogance substantially. <laughs> because you, you were right. Yeah, I was like, that's yeah. the, the— You kind of won one. I yeah, I super won one, <laughs> and it reinforced all of my instincts to as an eighteen-year-old thinking I'm gonna take on all these four-year-olds in this church and teach them something. You know, my favorite Bible verse at the time was in the Psalms when it says, "I'm wiser than my elders." You know, oh and gosh. So I was just not, <laughs> and it was of all the people who needed to catch this guy, and for their own heart's sake, not like it basically led to like the next two or three years of me taking myself extremely super seriously, mm. even though the right thing happened. But the Holy Spirit, not a personal being. Uh, this was my first doctrinal fight that I had. Wow. It was like my introduction into the world of theology matters and false doctrine creeps into the church, and you got to kind of squish it. Hmm. And it was capillate heresy. So. Well, and this could be a different episode, but uh, that is an interesting lesson that um, you can have orthodox beliefs and unorthodox Life and character. Oh, for sure. <laughs> in terms of Thinking humility and love. Orthopraxy, and, like yeah. practicing the way of Jesus. Yeah. Like him. Yeah. And in many ways, this guy probably had more of a Christ like character than I did, but he was just heretical. And, yeah. and I didn't really have a category for the possibility of that. I just thought my main job is to 
Snuff this guy out. We have the Holy Spirit. Well, well, okay. So let's let's go there for a minute since we're there. Okay. So this guy's more Christ-like character than you. Isn't that all that matters? I mean, I could imagine someone going like, well, so you're going to be an arrogant 18-year-old and nitpick this sweet guy, this kind guy, this loving guy, this, you know, Christ-like character guy, and you're going to nitpick him about the specific way he describes the Holy Spirit? I mean, gosh, that's everything that's wrong with Christianity. Doesn't it just matter how you live? And it doesn't just matter what, you know, like, what's the big deal, man? I do think that's a fair question, mostly because orthodoxy and orthopraxy are hugely important, right? Someone with who's harboring idolatry, who's uh, unrepentant, but yet maintains orthodox beliefs. Like, this is, I think, the person that Jesus is talking about when he says, truly, 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 I say to you, you'll say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I never knew you. Yeah. That. Because he says, away from me, you evildoers. Yeah, evildoers. Yeah, that there's, that when the when the head might have kind of be dialed in, but the heart is way off, there's a problem that Christ is actually more worried about. That orthodoxy and heresy is a huge deal. It's an exhortation in basically every single one of Paul's letters. Be careful. Watch over your doctrine. If people are teaching false stuff, get them out. Like protect the teaching, protect the teaching. It's a huge matter of emphasis, but ethics, the heart of love, humility, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control is certainly more emphasized throughout the whole New Testament. Yeah. So it's not as though one thing being insanely important makes another thing not insanely important. Yeah. And I think part of it is as a young person or even like a trained theologian, it's a lot easier to point at the black and white of orthodoxy and say the lines are easier to draw. Mm -hmm. Character is harder to identify and certainly harder to curate and develop than confession. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like I think people who are obsessed with orthodoxy but not obsessed with orthopraxy, it's it's in in a way childish to be able to identify false statements, but be unable to assimilate them into your heart and walk in humility and faith. But yeah, the, the personhood of the Holy Spirit or orthodoxy in general, if we're trying to know God, like it's important to know him as he's revealed himself on his terms. This is part of the Christian view that it's not a religion of discovery, it's a religion of revelation. Hmm. We don't find God, God finds us and reveals himself to us and we receive him as he reveals himself. And especially like take on the person of the Spirit, that it, if you're praying to a force, you know, or if you're being led by a force, that the Spirit in Acts 5 is referred to as God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. And, and it goes on to say, like, you lied to God. Mm. The Holy Spirit is God, that he is not a lesser God, um, but he is God. In First Corinthians 12, you have this idea of that he, the Holy Spirit, distributes gifts according to his will, that he has a will, a desire, that he is the attributes of personhood, uh, that the Holy Spirit is part of the tri-personal God that he is active in our life, leading us and guiding us. There's not a force or an emanation giving us vibes and moving us. So there's actually a person yeah. moving us and shaping us and leading us. And so there is an aspect that heresy is arrogant because it's going, God's revealed himself to me on these terms and I'm going to reject the way he's revealing himself to me. Mm, sure. But there's also just a functional reality that if I want to live congruently with creation uh, that requires an aspect of congruence with the creator and knowing him and Mm -hmm. uh, knowing him accurately 
Yeah. Well, we just want to go like, hey, you need to be orthodox in your beliefs and orthopraxic <laughs> in your life. I don't know. That's probably not a word. Yeah, I mean, it's like. But there is that sense in which going. And, and I, I think some of people's distaste for some of these doctrinal things comes out of experiences where people would get real hot and bothered about the doctrine and really complacent and totally ignore the lifestyle, right? And we're going like, well, we're not going to pick between having right doctrine and living in a way that's holy and loving and godly. We're going to we're going to do both. Yeah. At least in particular here like most of like the heavy pastoral lifting on pushing people, removing people from leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I think two of the instances have been related to doctrine. Uh, but way more, so probably eighty percent of it related, related to character. Yeah, and that is more difficult to assess because oftentimes it's less black and white, unless sure. there was some like obvious scandal or something like that. Yeah, which most times there isn't. Yeah, well, we kind of uh, went down that rabbit trail, but I, your story made me think of that. So, yeah, well, that's what, <laughs> that's, that's a nice thing about a podcast is you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so yeah, we just ramble a little bit. Yeah. Uh, next one we get is humans are not sinful by nature. So this is called Pelagianism. Pelagius was a false teacher in the 4th century, or 400s-ish. Augustine wrote a whole book against him called Against Pelagius. <laughs> Creative title. Not, yeah. They, they weren't less, con- they were less concerned with the marketing back in the day as much as concerned with the accuracy. Now, so original sin, are humans born sinful? Um, are they uh, selfishly or sinfully inclined from the womb? Uh so this is against like the blank slate view that we would have this idea that there's not, uh, we're, you know, kind of born the neutral nature and then by choice we develop a nature and this is like, no, we have a sinful nature, sinful heart. And apart from like the intervention of the spirit of God, we remain selfishly inclined. Well, this was one where 57% of self-identified evangelicals here agreed with that, that uh, people are mostly good by nature. And you go, man, that is almost six and ten. That's uh, that's really, <laughs> and man, that's just wild. Yeah, and so I again going back to why someone might say that, um, are people good by nature? Well, there, this is like I think one of the main tensions in Christian theology is the idea of the image of God that all people do, in a way, faithfully image God to the world and represent Him, and we can see like we can see God in people, and He is revealing Himself to us through all people. So they have dignity, value. Uh, they do reveal aspects of God's character, even in their sinful nature. And so when we talk about sinful nature, we're mostly talking about, like, not that they are, everyone is Hitler. Yeah, it's not everyone's as bad as they could be. Yeah, that would be like, uh, it's so total depravity, pervasive depravity, or original sin is just saying that all people uh, can't save themselves, that they're sinfully inclined uh, with a sinful nature from birth. And it's uh, kind of plays it that way. Like I, my toddler, you know, one of the, I don't really like my dog, but one of the best parts of the dog <laughs> is that it cleans up after my kids when they eat. So whenever I eat somewhere, <laughs> okay. whenever we go out somewhere to eat, and you're like, oh my gosh, how's this food get on the ground? Like, well, at home, the dog just dog slurps it all up. You know? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I, I think both of my kids don't really like cucumbers, but we like try to serve our kids vegetables mostly out of guilt, not necessarily because we. It's good for them. You yeah. love them. I don't mind cucumbers. Taylor doesn't like cucumbers. But uh, a bunch of cucumbers end up on the ground because cucumbers are gross and just taste like dirty water. <laughs> <laughs> dirty water with a crunch is a cucumber. And my it's my dog eats everything. 
This dog eats his own poop. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he won't eat cucumbers. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, Taylor, if you ever need an argument against cucumbers, this dog won't even eat cucumbers. This dog will eat <laughs> anything. You know, the kid will vomit on the ground. He eats that up. They, yeah, you know, some sure. cockroach gets murdered by okay. rat poison. <laughs> we get it. it. We get it. Cucumbers. <laughs> I'm not touching that. I'm better than this. This dog is like, I'm better than cucumbers. Uh, it's in it's in the dog nature yeah. to not like cucumbers. Dogs are not. And so it's nobody had to sell him on cucumbers are bad. He's just not into it. And that sinful nature is getting this idea that like by nature we are resistant to God. We we lean out, we mm-hmm. withdraw, we we turn away, that we are fleers when it comes to relationship with the Father in heaven. And he brings us to himself. We don't come to him. Like mm-hmm. that he he runs out to grab us, he scoops us up, he enfolds us in. And that internal, like the cessation of resistance or the yielding to God is part of the gift of faith. That faith gives us the gift, this the softening of the heart, the lowering of the head, the bending of the knee to God most high is the first work of grace. Hmm. Like the desire for grace is grace. The desire for God is grace. And rather than saying people are good by nature, we can say people are made in God's image, so they have lots of dignity and value, but they're certainly not... Uh, sinless by nature, and this is even like one of the things that Jesus got Jesus in trouble. Is you know, like, uh, so you call me good, but only God is good. Like he's saying like, yeah. yes, I am good, but just so you know, only God is good. That's mm-hmm. one of the ways he calls himself God is he says that hey, he's good. Yeah, and so that's again, there's aspects in which we can say humans are good because they're in God's image, but from a moral perspective, it's more accurate and to say that only God is good. And that by his grace, he saves us regardless. Well, there's a paragraph toward the end of this article that I think is, uh, I read it as pretty damning. It says this, while evangelicals were found to be moving away from orthodox beliefs in several of the questions about God, they've grown more assured in their stances on cultural and ethical issues. And then it says, among evangelicals, 94% believe sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin, and 91% believe abortion is a sin, both of which it mentions are the highest levels since the survey begins. And yep. so I guess I'm, I don't know, those questions still feel to me like they had to be 100%, 100%, but at least those are in the 90s. Um, but man, I, it, it th- is, this it, tells it me like we're, as evangelicals, actually adopting the non-Christian definitions of evangelicals and seeing ourselves as part of some sort of cultural movement more than part of a spiritual movement. It is just damning that 94% believe in, that sex outside traditional marriage is a sin. And yet, 73% of people think Jesus was a created being. Right. Like, okay, so Christians get sex ethics wrong 6% of the time, but they get high Christian theology proper heresy wrong. <laughs> 73% of the time. Like, yeah. So there's just a gap on the places where we're certain, places we're not certain. Right. That... I think we just need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, like, how did, how does this happen? And so I do think that's part of, like, why we have a church. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we do a podcast. That's why we, like, try to learn from church history. So G.K. Chesterton has this idea of democracy being the radical idea that everyone's vote should matter regardless of how much money they make or the color of their skin. And he said uh, orthodoxy, he wrote this in his book called Orthodoxy, by the way. <laughs> Orthodoxy is this radical view that people should have votes, uh, not 
the people's votes vote should not be excluded on the basis that they just happen to be dead already. Huh. So he called it democracy of the dead. Yeah. It's like tradition, orthodoxy. He talks about how it feels like heresy is the brave thing, but actually it if you're trying to stand a pin up on its head, there is literally only way you can do that. It's perfectly balanced. That is orthodoxy. Yeah. That it is the brave, difficult thing to cling to orthodoxy in the world that's offering you tons of alternatives all the time. So I hope that we as a church would see that the brave frontier, the way that we progress as a church, our hope for the future is rooted in our ability to cling to the doctrine once for all revealed to the saints. That is like the, the deposit of Orthodox doctrine yeah, and to not just believe it in our heads, but be, be held by it in our hearts and to find ourselves carried by the spirit in that way. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to end. Um, Thanks for listening, everybody. And, um, yeah, we'll put a link to that article uh, in the show description. And, uh, yeah, we appreciate you listening. If you think of anyone that would be helped by this, uh, please share it with them. And uh, we'll see you later. (laughs)